Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. What a week. But we made it to the end. Before you check out for the weekend, you got to make sure you don't miss anything big, right? I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and it's time for the WBEZ Weekly News Recap. Let's get right into it. There's a lot of big stories to discuss. The Illinois Gaming Board approved the license for the old Medina Temple to house a temporary casino. If you're a car owner, you should know that two lawmakers are pushing to regulate hikes on your car insurance rate. A new study from Bankrate.com found that when it comes to the true cost of auto insurance, Chicago rates 10th in the nation. And the Chicago mayor's race continues to heat up with Election Day just weeks away. Ballas' campaign defended his son's involvement in the deadly police-involved shooting. Former Governor Pat Quinn endorsing Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia for mayor of Chicago. The outcome of the election will be my favor, 100%. I'm very confident in that. Despite that confidence, Mayor Lori Lightfoot is facing a tough re-election battle. With us now to break down the news is a panel of wonderful Chicago journalists. NBC Channel 5's Christian Farr. Maudlin Ihajerica, recently retired columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times, and John Fountain, journalism professor at Roosevelt University. Leading the news this week is the mayor's race. With a little more than two weeks until Election Day, a new poll shows the three frontrunners for mayor, Lori Lightfoot, Chewy Garcia, and Paul Vallis, are locked in statistical dead heat. Christian, NBC5 was part of this poll along with the Sun-Times, WBEZ, and Telemundo. So what were some of the major findings? Well, I mean, one of the biggest things, of course, has been a part of all these mayoral forums is crime and public safety. We've seen that uh, citywide. We've seen that countrywide as well in a lot of our major cities. Um, So those are one of the things that top for uh, voters right now. And and like you mentioned, Sasha, you've got uh, a three-way tie between uh, Chewy Garcia, Paul Vallis, uh, and Lightfoot, and we just heard Lightfoot there. She feels very confident this is going to be um, uh, her win. But this is a tight race right now. Um, I think today we just heard that uh, Congressman Quigley uh, put his support behind Chewy Garcia. Um, and so uh, this is going to be a tough uh, reelection for um, Lightfoot. Um, there's also within that poll, this is the Mason-Dixon polling and strategy that happened between January 31st and February 3rd, mm-hmm. talking to 625 registered Chicago voters. Um, and, of course, crime being one of those things, but also trying to figure out the solutions to that. Economics is a big deal. But we also have the undecided voter that is out there as well. That's another thing. And we're, right. you know, just a couple of weeks away from the election. And you've got a lot of people out there who are still undecided, you know, nearly 20 percent in these findings. And that's going to mean we don't know what's going to happen on the 28th. Mm, yeah, let's dig into some of that, Christian, uh, with with the rest of the gang here. More than 60 percent of voters disapprove of Mayor Lightfoot. John, mm-hmm. what do you think is behind that? Well, I think that uh, Mayor Lightfoot has certainly been mayor, and this is not making any excuses, but she was mayor, has been mayor doing, um, you know, the George Floyd and racial reckoning that happened across the nation and that had a very real impact on the city of Chicago in terms of looting and what we've seen downtown. I think also this idea of, um, you know, the um, uh, police brutality um, still resonates with uh, among voters, and uh, people are concerned about violence in the city of Chicago. It is, you know, we li- Chicago is in some ways a tell of two cities. 
people will look at the violence and they will say that Chicago is not, you know, in the top 10 in terms of violence. Well, it depends on where you live. And, you know, it really is a difference, you know, as a former crime reporter, it has always been very clear to me that the way we look at crime per capita is not the uh, truest barometer of how violent a city is. And so if you look at Inglewood, Chicago, or uh, North Lawndale, Chicago, or West Garfield, Chicago, I think the numbers are are significantly higher and will show that people who live in those communities, um, you know, they, 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 they deal with this violence and the gunshots and seeing the bodies and, uh, you know, on a, on a daily basis. Yeah. And so it's something that, um, you know, I, I think that there are still, you know, some uh, folks who are not very happy with her performance. Well, Maudlin, in the WTTW forum this week, Lightfoot accused Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson of, quote, mansplaining and told former CPS CEO Paul Vallis not to be disrespectful. Is there something to her argument that she is being disrespected or treated differently as a woman? I think there's something to her argument that she is the target of most of the um, debates um, before it shifted to Vallis. And the reason, of course, is because she is the incumbent. And um, so she's absolutely correct. They're all coming at her. Um, and understandably so, because she's the one with the record to attack. She's the one with the record to dissect. Um, but I will say there's always, always something to um, the slight bit of disrespect that are given women as politicians. Um, there's always something to it. And um, you do see that in the way they talk to her. And um, there is a way that you can debate without dis- being disrespectful. And I think that that gets lost. But I'll end with saying, you know, uh, Mayor Lightfoot has kind of um, created that 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 foundation because her biggest criticism among the city council is that she is just so abrasive and disrespectful to Mm. them. Well, I mean, piggybacking off what John was just talking about, more than 70 percent of voters think that Chicago is on the wrong track. Is that surprising to any of you, Christian? Uh, No, no. I mean, I've been here since 2009 and the crime is just gotten worse and it and p- different people have been at the helm when i got here it was daily then it was rom and now it is lightfoot and it just doesn't seem that it's letting up in any way shape or form and there's really an economics thing here that's not largely discussed enough uh, these are communities that really really need when john was talking about inglewood you're talking about north lawndale they need an infusion of something yeah uh, other than police officers um, to improve those communities john the numbers seem to back up what you said well, they, they do. And, and I think that the numbers, you know, looking at this thing quantitatively is one thing. But looking at it qualitatively in terms of the stories that people tell, in terms of the groups that exist, like mothers of murdered sons and uh, uh, folks who are members of Purpose Over Pain, and the fact that St. Sabina each summer marches throughout the community every Friday of the month to draw attention to this thing called gun violence, Mm -hmm. I think it is, um, I don't think we can say enough about it. And in terms of its impact, when you have children on the south and west sides of Chicago who know the routine when they hear gunfire, to hit the ground, to protect themselves by hiding in tubs, um, when we have to hear the sirens and, and see the continual, um, call of the, uh, of, of the undertaker, 
Or young wow. people. When you lay it out like that, John, my goodness. Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia got a new endorsement this week. It was from a former governor. Can you fill us in, Maudlin? Well, yeah. Um, governor Pat Quinn, of course, threw his support behind Chuy Garcia. And um, it came as somewhat of a surprise because Vallis was his former running mate um, when he ran for governor. And because he did throw his support behind Mayor Lightfoot in the last election. But, you know, I think that um, this particular election has been uh, very dramatic and, and dynamic and has created very strange bedfellows in many different ways. And so I think that Quinn sees that, um, you know, Lightfoot is, is again, you know, in a fight for her life. And um, and Ballas, I think that there's a power thing going on there. You know, you don't throw your your support behind the person you want it to be number two um, behind you. Mm. So I think there's, you know, there's politics involved and there's a lot of strange bedfellows being made. Do you think Quinn's endorsement counts for much in this race? I think that it counts for just about as, as little as all the other endorsements, you know. <laughs> I mean, so, not so very much. Not right. very much. <laughs> All right. Um, getting back to crime, of course, the, the issue that we know is top of voters' minds, John. Uh, the poll, as we mentioned, it shows two-thirds of Chicagoans feel unsafe in the city. I want you to dig into some of the various uh, platforms that we've heard so far and, and how they differ from these different candidates. Um, specifically, let's talk about the fact that everyone except Lori Lightfoot says that they're going to fire Police Superintendent David Brown the minute they get in office. I think that's, uh, to, to some degree, low-hanging fruit. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know... I have seen Chicago, as, as, as all of us have, um, the police chiefs change. And I was uh, chief crime reporter at the Chicago Tribune many moons ago in one year when we thought we were going to hit the 1,000 mark in terms of the number of homicides in the city of Chicago. We fell a little short of that, thank goodness. Um, but I think, you know, when people talk about policing and changing um, the atmosphere in terms of violence in Chicago, I don't know that they go far enough. You know, the issue is not, and this does not absolve any police chief who's heading the Chicago Police Department of his responsibility to come in and to, you know, to take the mantle and to do what needs to be done to uh, to change the city of Chicago. But I think there are some issues that, 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 that I, I want to hear more um, candidates, I think, talk about, which is coming up with a holistic approach. You know, I don't think most folks out there think that there should be a defunding of police. We need the police. We need good police officers. In fact, Brandon Johnson is very particular. He won't say defund, even though he wants to see CPD's resources move to other areas. Well, I I think that's one thing, to, to, to advocate moving CPD resources to other areas I'm not a politician, thank goodness. <laughs> and None I'm of not, us are. And I'm, not, I'm yeah. not a policymaker, but I do have a, what my mother would say, a little common sense. And I, and I think that we also have to talk about a more holistic approach. Resources for mental health, I think he's on, on the money on that. Yeah. Where that money comes from, I don't know. Fixing Chicago public schools, police training and retraining, greater accountability, forging relationships with the community, churches, grassroots organizations. And I think... Building trust. I don't know that trust has ever existed between mm. the African-American community and Chicago. We still remember, I still remember Fred Hampton and Mark Clark and what happened to them. I still remember so many. Uh, I remember John Burge 
and the things that happen to African American men with electrodes attached to their genitals and and having uh, police beat confessions out of them. So, 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 so we've got to build some level of trust mm-hmm. between the community and police, and I think that would go a long way. And I, we have to have candidates. Yeah. Talk seriously about that. So, Christian, criticizing the police chief, is that typical, pretty typical campaign strategy then, you think? I, oh, oh I, I think so. And uh, but, the, you know, the, the interesting... police chief who seems like he might be gone before they <laughs> get might the be chance gone to. Because he's, he's reaching that age, too, where he's got to got to retire as well. But I mean, you know, the, the thing is, I went to one of the mayoral campaigns on the on the uh, forums on the north side and every single candidate was talking about throwing more police, throwing more police, throwing more police at the uh, situation. But. You know, when you walk into these communities and, you know, I've done many crime stories in Inglewood and Austin. And when you go in there, you know, people are used to seeing police officers uh, in their community and they kind of feel like it's almost like the military. Um, And there's fear going on. And so just to simply have the answer, just throw police at it um, to solve this problem. I think it's John brought up a bunch of separate points that you got to have that holistic approach. There's the mental health aspect as well. And we have to be treated in the African-American community, especially those living in those communities have to have a certain type of mental health um, therapy. You know, it's got to really speak to them. It's got to have people that look like them and can really understand what's going on in those communities. Because if you're in the suburbs, you're not dealing with this. But if you're on Inglewood, you're dealing with it in a different way. Our friends on YouTube are chiming in. Here's Jordan Novak, who says, Brandon Johnson spends a lot of time talking about a holistic approach to crime and the police, including the treatment, not trauma movement. Mm-hmm. What do you say to that, John? I think that that is important. It is an important message. You know, in these times, I say that, you know, we are all suffering from some degree of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I and I think that when we see children who are in these communities that are besieged by this kind of violence and crime, no one really talks about in mass, you know, the impact on those children and how we get to um, whether or not they get treatment. And so we see if something happens in some community beyond the, you know, beyond the west and south sides of Chicago, the. Um, impact or the 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 rush to provide mental health services is almost immediate and it is it is consuming and i'm not saying that that shouldn't happen it should happen but why don't we see the same kinds of response on 16th and kaminsky or in inglewood or in um austin when those kinds of things happen right in Chicago. Madeline, sticking with police, uh, the Chicago Police Department's being sued by a shooting victim, not of a cop, but of a robber. What is that about? You know, um, this is the young man who was um, shot and uh, left um, uh, critically, critically wounded, fighting for his life, ended up becoming an amputee. Um, when he was shot by a armed robber who had been earlier in the day chased by police, um, because uh, he had been involved in, in several crimes, mm-hmm. police eventually stopped the chase, um, conceivably because of the danger of, of, of a high-speed chase and the policies of the Chicago Police Department. Well, the young man and his family are suing the city, saying that if this policy had not existed, if police had continued that chase to fruition, that young man would not have been available to, I mean, would not have been out to, um, uh, commit the crime against him that day. I see. You know, I think that this is really, I, when I saw this, I thought, you know, it's really a case of 
you're darned, you know, for lack of a better word, if you do, and you're darned if you don't, you know, because um, we want police to to chase the bad guys. We want police to get the bad guys. But at the same time, we don't want police to slam into old women and and kill them. You know, the, a first lady at a church, as occurred several years ago, mm-hmm. because they're involved in a high speed chase. We don't want police to 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 end up in a in a in a foot chase and 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 that ends up you know shooting someone in the back. Um, that you know, we we don't want that. So it's like you're darned if you do, you're darned if you don't. And I don't know, I don't know if he has a case here, but um, everyone is welcome to try. Yeah, well. Another story, our colleagues at the, the tribe actually published this one this week. It was about Paul Vallis's son, who's a San Antonio police officer. He was involved in the, the fatal shooting of a black man last year. Can you give us more details, John? Well, uh, Paul Vallis's son, Gus Vallis, uh, appears he was involved in uh, an officer-related shooting, three police officers. Um, the man uh, who was killed was identified as 28-year-old Kevin Donald. Johnson. He was reportedly riding his bicycle as the officers chased him to a creek. Officers said they were serving a felony warrant, and uh, according to reports, they ordered police ordered him to drop his hands. Then, as he turned to face them, police uh, shout that he's got a gun. I watched the uh, the video that was put out by the uh, San Antonio police, and. Um, can I just say too many videos coming out too lately? Much. I'm just it is it is, you know, even though they put up the graphic disclaimer, it is just uh, it is insane. And the fact is that most of the videos that we see of officers using deadly force involves young black men. Mm-hmm. And this was a case in this case. And uh, so are Vallis's close ties to the police. Are they likely to come under more scrutiny in the next two weeks? I think the issue that is that is a major issue um, for some, especially in the African American community, as they further raise questions about uh, uh, Vallis's stance on police conduct, especially amid continued police brutality against African Americans in Chicago and across the nation. And so, I think it will. It has. Madeline, how do you think voters will feel about Vallis's ties to the police? And before you answer, let me jump to our friends here on YouTube who are chiming in. On this very topic, Shamrock Bloom says, Paul Vallis has no room to talk about law and order after his son gunned down a young man in San Antonio who was running away. And Paige Smith says, the violence of each individual on each individual has has put bystanders in the crosshairs. What do you think, Madeline? I think that that black voters um, will be impacted by this particular revelation um, involving Vallis. And one of the things that the tribe points out is that Vallis's campaign brushed it away as he was absolved, it's done, but in actuality there's an investigation that is continuing. And um, this is a this is a, a tr- this is a hot point. This is for for black voters because again, it is typically armed unarmed black men and women who are in these videos. Um, who are the victims of police brutality. All right. Our, our discussion about police contact, conduct continues, Christian. You just finished an in-depth analysis about racial profiling and traffic stops in suburban Chicago. 
What did you find? Right. So this was tied to the case of Sandra Bland, as we know, that happened back in 2015 in Texas. She's from this area. And hats off to uh, Katie Smizer, our producer over at NBC. She's the one who came up with these findings. So Sandra Bland was in a traffic stop in Texas um, for a failure to signal. And it was a she was arrested, taken to jail. And then a couple of days later was found hanging in her jail cell. Um, there were questions from her family whether that was truly suicide. But, you know, push, pushing that aside, um, Sandra Bland had done a lot of videos beforehand talking about interactions with police, black people interacting with police, the negativity behind it, trying to help white people understand that this does happen. And so um, our producer, Katie Smizer, took a look at the numbers of the traffic stops that Sandra Bland was involved in and found out that uh, just a quick conclusion is that she was right. Um, a majority of those traffic stops that she was involved in, they found that those police departments at a higher rate and some very high percentages um, were pulling over black drivers much greater than they were pulling mm. over white drivers, which you know, probably with the panel here is not surprising. Hmm. Um, you know, it's not a surprising thing to see. But there's a lot of people out there who talk about, you know, just comply and you'll survive a traffic stop. And these are all things that um, should the traffic stop happen to begin with? And right. should a person be treated a certain way during that traffic stop? Um, you know, should a failure to signal end in a person being taken to jail? Um, and so uh, we were able to speak with Shantae Needham, who is uh, Sandra Bland's older sister. Um, she had always been concerned about her doing these videos um, and thought that something like this would happen, but understands that the power of her words now eight years later um, still ring true, especially after what happened with Tyree Nichols in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. That you know, Those were videos that were really, mm-hmm. I know for me, um, and I think probably everybody here, tough to watch. Oh, absolutely. And I want to stick with the suburbs for another quick moment here. One was named the safest in the nation, Maudlin. <laughs> yes, Naperville. Isn't that interesting? The safest place in the nation is right outside of Chicago. <laughs> um, I, I would venture to say that there are many safe places in the nation outside of Chicago. But, you know, um, yeah, I found it fascinating, particularly because I grew up out there. I grew up in Downers Grove, went to Downers Grove South. Um, I was there when Naperville was just a bunch of vacant land. Um, and so, you know, today it is one of the most affluent suburbs in the southwest side, um, southwest region. And um, it is not it is no surprise. But, you know, I will just end with what are the characteristics of this safe community? Lots of wealth, lots of green space, lots of jobs, lots of community services. And, um, you know, these are things that we do not have in the less safe spaces of Chicago. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's striking. Our conversation just moved from Chicago voters' concerns about crime to a local suburb being honored as the safest city in the country. How about that? All right. We're going to steer the conversation south to Springfield and take a look at some legislation being considered. First, two lawmakers are pushing to regulate car insurance rate hikes. Madeline, what is this about? You know, um, 48 states currently regulate uh, uh, car insurance rate hikes and prohibit discrimination by um, gender, zip code, and, um, <coughs> forgive me, and two state lawmakers. And want, credit score, too. I'm sorry, and credit score. And two state lawmakers in Springfield want to bring uh, Illinois into the uh, 21st century 
and, um, you know, to institute this. And it's, it's long overdue because it, there really has been no, no reason why people should be discriminated against because of where they live. If you live in Inglewood, you have to pay 10 times high, higher, you know, rate. It, it's, it's really the poverty tax is what it is. Hmm. Any other thoughts on, on, on these car insurance rate hikes, gentlemen? I just don't want them in my house. I just I don't want to pay. Them. I don't even look at my bill. I, just, I, I, I know. Is that it. bad? What bill? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It just comes out it of feels my like account. a mortgage to me. But anyway. All right. Two other lawmakers in Springfield. They've got a lot to say about diapers, and I'm looking at you because you're the obvious expert on this here. Yeah, Christian. I'm a diaper expert. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm glad my kids aren't into diapers anymore. Diapers are expensive. That and formula they is are. very, very expensive. They are. But uh, two Chicago area lawmakers pushing for the creation of a monthly diaper allowance. Um, and uh, this is uh, really kind of a big deal um, because uh, there's a, a woman who created her own diaper bank. It's called uh, Loving Bottoms Diaper Bank, um, mm-hmm. but created this back in 2004 um, and really saw a need because she couldn't afford diapers. And I think somebody had to pawn their wedding ring um, or an engagement ring in order to be wow. able to buy diapers. This is how tough it was. And they really weren't talking about it back then. But now fast forward to this time uh, with these two uh, Chicago uh, state senators, uh, Karina Villa and Representative Lakeisha Collins, from both from the Chicago area, want some new legislation that would allow families to purchase diapers using their SNAP or WIC benefits. Surprisingly, I didn't even know this, that if it's passed, Illinois is going to become the third state in the nation to offer a diaper allowance. Only the third Just the state, third? Just the third. California and Washington both do it. And I'm kind of surprised that this is not happening like in New York State or even Pennsylvania, where right. I used to work in the Philadelphia area. You know, uh, definitely in major cities where people, you know, really are, are struggling. And I mean, we saw that struggle during covid um, and I went to many food banks, and people couldn't even get diapers at the food banks. I think now there's a lot more offerings there um, than just food. Um, you know, people have been able to pick up even more things, and I think they do have diapers now. But this will be a good thing, I think, because this stuff is really expensive. <laughs> when, yeah. When the kids are out of diapers, you get happy. Oh, that's no joke, for sure. <laughs> I, I mean, it's been years since my two yeah. were in diapers, yeah. but I know I know the struggle is still real, for sure. Uh, John, Cook County's got uh, some news here. The first of 24 $500 monthly universal income payments. They've been sent out. Cook County President Tony Preckwinkle called it the nation's largest test of whether a universal basic income can actually reduce poverty. Remind us how this program works and who's eligible. Well, reportedly, more than 233,000 Cook County residents applied to be a part of that uh, $42 million two-year program with 3,250 households winning a lottery to take part in the program. And as you said, last month they received the first of 24 $500 monthly payments. Half of those participants earned $21,000 a year. The poverty line that's below the poverty line at uh, $26,500 for a family of four. And 58% of participating households have children. So it's going to households that have children. And look, there's some... Some critics will say it's just another liberal do-gooder program that provides more welfare. I happen to believe that we have an obligation as a society to help the least of these, that as a nation we are only as strong as the weakest among us and that we have to have a commitment to ensuring a certain measure of of, uh, sustainability. That's just being human. I remember what it was like to be a poor kid growing up on the west side of Chicago. and the times we yeah. went, went without food and the fact that if there were 
an additional $500 a month, how far that would go. And so I've got to believe that this is going to help families. And this isn't a permanent program for those families, but it's it's meant to be a hand up rather than a handout. Mm, interesting. Uh, Maudlin, undocumented immigrants, they're now also in line to receive some money from the city. What are the details? Yeah, these are um, part of the pandemic relief efforts, and um, they are proposing, the city is proposing $500 payments to those who identify as domestic workers or, um, uh, and, and who have undocumented undocumented immigration status. Okay. And it's targeting that population that did not qualify for any relief during the coronavirus relief um, stimulus program that was um, uh, initiated during uh, 2020. And so um, this program is meant to sort of be a redress of that and and make it possible for those undocumented families who really are the backbone of some of our industries um, as domestic workers um, to receive some sort of some sort of help. Yeah, and I should mention we are actually going to go in depth on the details of, of this program on Monday's reset, right about in our noon hour. So l- listeners. Definitely tune in for that. Okay, Christian, back to Springfield. There is a tax proposal that could help the Bears move to Arlington Heights. Give us the details. Is this move happening or not? I mean, you ask me personally? <laughs> I, I think it is. I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. The Bears want to host While a I Super have Bowl. You. <laughs> the Bears want to host a Super Bowl at some point, and I think. Right. And, and um, I was in Philadelphia when the Eagles moved from Veterans Stadium, which was not dissimilar to... Um, you know, Soldier Field. Um, and um, when the, when the Philadelphia Eagles got in control of their whole stadium, you know, it mm-hmm. changed everything uh, for that team. And now we see that they're going to be playing on Sunday. Um, so what is happening um, right now is that there is a tax proposal that has been filed in Springfield that could aid the Bears in their uh, proposed Arlington Heights development. And um, so this plan, which required the Bears to invest at least $500 million in converting that 326-acre um, uh, site, has been floated for uh, some weeks right now. Um, and this legislation would help them in their financing for that um, um, development. So basically they would freeze um, the property tax assessment on that uh, former site, which was the Arlington International uh, race course. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, I think even the, um, the lawmaker who, who put this out here was, you know, has expressed doubts about it, but might think this might be the best approach, um, to this. But I mean, again, personally, I think it's going to happen. Um, the Bears really want to have control of their own location. Mm-hmm. They want to be able to expand. Um, and there's a lot of fighting that has to happen when you're that close to the lake. You got to fight with the friends of the park. Uh, there's going to be a lot of pushback in terms of that that space that they want. Yeah. Um, but we'll just have to see what's going to happen. Any other Bears fans in the room? Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm, yeah. A, I'm a diehard. <laughs> You're a diehard. <laughs> what do you all want to see happen? Sad Bears fans. Sad Bears fans. He was oh, pretty happy to today. You want them to stay where they are, right? You yes, I do. Well, I, yeah. I can't lie. I want them to stay in Chicago. <laughs> it is purely selfish. Mm-hmm. I was in Washington, D.C., working at the Washington Post when Washington Redskins now the Washington Commanders. Commanders. Yes. I had to remember, too. <laughs> Me, too. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, but first they were Washington football team. Yeah. Right. <laughs> then Washington mm-hmm. Commanders. Because they were never going to change from the Redskins. No, right. they were not. <laughs> they folded up camp, and they and they moved to Maryland. And I remember writing a piece about the old Washington Stadium, and my lead was the thrill is gone. And so, <laughs> and so I think... 
if the Bears do go to Arlington, uh, yeah. the thrill is yeah. gone. Thrill yes, is it gone. is. I mean, hey, the New York Giants, uh, you know, they play in New Jersey. <laughs> they don't even play in New York. <laughs> that is true. So. Um, well, sticking with you, John, plans are moving forward to, to bring a casino, at least a temporary one, to River North, very close to Michigan Avenue. What's the latest? Well, the latest is that um, there has been some uh, approval to allow the old uh, Medina Temple site to serve as uh, as the site of a temporary uh, casino. And uh, what's uh, interesting about that, I, I remember as a kid going to Medina Temple for the circus and, and for various okay. various things. <laughs> but, you, you know, I know about the swirling questions of whether a real estate developer, Albert Freeman, uh, who is going to serve as Valley's landlord, is going to operate this casino, reportedly influenced this development by making a $6,000 donation to uh, Mayor Lightfoot's campaign months before it became public that Bally planned to use Medina Temple at the city's urging. But, you know, one of the things I think about, too, is as developers and, and other proponents see gambling as a way of boosting city revenue, I wonder most about the moral cost of vice, how many Already poor folk in the city of Chicago, a working class or middle class, will lose their shirt, their homes, mm. or their lives um, chasing a jackpot. And in the end, will gambling uh, make Chicago better or worse? That is to be seen, John. Um, Maudlin, this, this permanent casino near the Chicago River on the site of the Tribune's former printing plant, that's supposed to open by 2026. But given how construction can be delayed, could we be looking at the Medina Temple just being the casino for longer than we thought originally? Oh, absolutely, because that's the way that things go in Chicago. Um, construction is always delayed, and um, there's always somehow things occur in in the way that people um, uh predict mm -hmm. that it's going to occur. There are those who are saying, oh, they just want to keep it down there anyway. It, they're not going to move. It's going to be like years before they move. And just because of history, we know that it's it, they'll likely be there much longer. Mm -hmm. I got to touch on one last story before we take a pause, Christian. This one has to do with state laws and regulations um, as well. You've been reporting on that battle over social equity licenses uh, in the cannabis industry. Give us the latest update there. Yeah. So um, earlier this week, we spoke to Tyrone Muhammad, who has his own um, anti-violence uh, organization. He's an ex-con and his his organization is all ex-cons. And I met him about uh, two years ago. He's protesting in front of um dispensaries. Uh, the particular one was uh, Cure Relief, which has a lot of dispensaries uh, around the Chicago area and around the country. Um, and so uh, he was talking about social equity, not being able to get one of those cannabis licenses, ex-cons not even being allowed to get one of those cannabis licenses. He went from protest to then wanting to open up his own um, dispensary. Um, and he's done that in the village of Worth um, mm. under a hemp license. Uh, it comes through the farm bill. Um, and so they can sell certain cannabis-related products. Um, they have this place called THC Cafe, a very nice cafe that just happens to sit right next door to a cure-relief dispensary. Um, and so they've got another one in Wicker Park. He's as a business partner. Um, and they're really trying to use some of the funds from that to help with anti-violence, um, which is uh, another big thing on his list. He feels like um, as ex-cons, they did a disservice to their communities. And so they're trying to pay back 
those communities um, by trying to find solutions to improve um, communities like Englewood, to improve communities like Austin, to try to give them something. And so some of their proceeds from that will go back into their anti-violence uh, plan. Um, but, you know, it's very interesting. He wants to grow big time. And there was also another, I believe, another hemp-related uh, dispensary that opened up in Burbank um, oh, okay. by a black woman as well just yesterday. So, um, you know, there was a promise of social equity. They don't feel like that promise has been fulfilled. And so they're trying to find different ways to get into that space. Let's turn to another huge story this week, getting the world's attention. All week, we have been hearing the heartbreaking stories, Christian, of suffering from Turkey and Syria. The death toll there from the earthquake has now surpassed 20,000. Now, there's some groups here in Chicago who are actually mobilizing to help. What can you tell us about them? Yeah, quite a few groups. So we reached out to, I don't know, maybe five or six groups that are um, connected uh, to either Turkey and and Syria, um, and they have been raising money. They have been uh, collecting donations because uh, some of the most immediate things that are needed, people have lost their homes. So, you know, um, you know, there's uh, just um, things, hygiene products that they need, socks, clothing, things of that nature. And so they were collecting those. And one of the organizations we spoke to is the Turkish-American Cultural Alliance, also known as TACA, and they're on the northwest side. And I, we drove over there, and they don't open up until 4 o'clock because this is pretty much a lot of volunteers mm-hmm. who work during the day, so they're able to get there at 4 o'clock. But there were just donations just piling up on the street really? that they all were able to carry in. And, and um, they said that I believe Turkish Airlines and the consulate was going to help them get those items over there. But there's so many other organizations that do work in that region, especially um, you know with the conflict that's already going on there. Mm-hmm. So they already have boots on the ground who have been there with pop-up tents, things of that nature, to really sort of help out. Um, but these are also people who have family members who were impacted right. by the earthquake. Um, you know, somebody whose family member was trapped still in the rubble, um, and they have no idea if they're, you know, dead or alive. And that's, yeah. that's just something really shocking. You, you know, you started with, what, you know, four or 5,000 dead, and now you're, you know, 20-plus thousand, and it's probably going to be even greater than that. They have not had back-to-back earthquakes like this. They're used to earthquakes, but not like this. Yeah, the numbers are are rising. We we covered this earlier in the week on on Reset as well. I remember that day the death toll was at about 6,000, and by the time I got to the segment, you know, in the middle of the two-hour program, we were at 6,400, and so I was updating the number in the script, and it felt terrible when I thought about what exactly I was doing, you know, and we had two organizations on uh, the Zakat Foundation as well as Med Global. And, and to your point, Crystal, they were, uh, Christian, they were saying um, donations are what we need right now. Thoughts and prayers are great, but we need things. We right? need cash. We need cash. Yeah. We need money. Um, let's turn now to two education related stories. First up, John, uh, academics, I think around the country, they seem to be celebrating the UIC faculty's new contract gains. So remind us of the highlights of this new contract. Well, after months of bargaining, uh, faculty at the University of Illinois in Chicago have voted to accept a new four-year contract that includes $60,000 minimum for the lowest paid faculty at the university and a commitment to improve mental and emotional wellness uh, resources for students as well as psychoeducational testing. As a university professor myself, 
It sounds simply like a win-win situation, you know. I mean, is this something you and your colleagues have been watching? You're over at Roosevelt. It is certainly something I have been watching. Also, my daughter's a graduate student at the University of Illinois in Chicago. So, um, you know, anytime I think we are we are connected. I was in Ghana uh, last year uh, teaching at the University of Ghana as a Fulbright Scholar. And for several months, the University of Ghana uh, instructors were on strike for this very, uh, very thing. Interesting. And so I supported them. I support teachers everywhere. Yeah. And I think it's, a, again, a win-win. I also think it's interesting that we see mental health support yes. for students added to this faculty labor contract. But, we, you know, we've been seeing a steady rise in, in requests for counseling on campuses yes. since, I think, even before the pandemic. I agree. And it is, it, I think it has, I don't have numbers in front of me, but I think just uh, just anecdotally, there has been um, an increase in the number of students who are seeking these uh, services and for, for obvious reasons, you know, coming through the pandemic and so on. Yeah. And, and what happens, you know, when students, the state of mind that they're in when they come to the classroom and, and their ability to study and um, you know, and to and to deal with life on campus, really, um, this helps them. Yeah, state lawmakers last month approved $9 million in funds for additional mental health services on campuses. Yeah. Um, over to you, Maudlin, and over to the University of Chicago, where they've released a new study about principals in CPS. What does yes. their data show? Uh, yes, those two new studies um, have found that principals in the Chicago public school system are actually more diverse than principals in other large school districts across the country, particularly urban ones. And um, it's a nice uh, it's a it's a nice revelation. Um, I remember covering education in the mid '90s, and um, there were very very few. Uh, principles of color in the system at that time. Right now, it's showing that three of every four black and white um, CPS students have a principal that looks like them. And um, 44% of the principals are black, 35% are white. Mm -hmm. And um, the only, the lowest figure is the, um, the concern is the number of Latino principals. That's at 17%. And, of course, Latinos now make up 50% right. of, of students in the system. But, you know, it's a growth. It's a growth. Um, again, back in when I was covering education, um, black students were rising and, and were up to about 40% of the system. And, and yet there were, you know, there was a dearth of principals that, that looked like them. So now we're at 44%. And, and now Latino students are, are the rising number. Interesting. And so it will always follow those, that growth. Well, as we start to wrap here, folks, any stories that you you all came across that you thought this week maybe were underreported? I know there was a lot about the mayor's race this week. You can avoid that. But anything else across your radar that you think, wow, this didn't really get a lot of coverage? I, I, I don't know if it's, you know, I, I want to see a little bit more with the mayor's race um, and look at all of these um, candidates a little bit more closely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I you go to you can go to the mayoral forums and you can see them, but I, I I think one of the things that the one forum that I went to, it's just they all had the same answer for crime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what is that telling me? I mean, I'm not That's a part Chicago of the reason voter. why we wanted to split ours up as well, right? Into right. multiple days is just to give them a little more time to to speak, right? Rather than these forums where you've got all nine and you're getting just a slice of information and, and it's just a snippet and it's just throw officers throw officers at it and it was just it was kind of head scratching to me because that's what we've been doing and it's not working 
And so we're actually seeing that, you know, when I first came here in 2006, uh, there was a young woman who was shot while she was in her living room. Mm. And so what happened during the pandemic? There's like three kids who were shot while standing in their living room or family room inside their homes where you assume they're they're safe. That same story was repeating itself. And so I think you got to find out you have to find a different way of solving this problem rather than just let's let's take all the let's take all the officers off of desk duty mm-hmm. and throw them out there onto the street. Yeah, I think there were some fascinating revelations about some of the candidates that I, I, I think that the media just passed over so quickly, such as the um, uh, the for the comments by Mr. Vallis about uh, being uh, at heart really a, a Republican and the um, the actual recording of, of, of that discussion that was um, revealed. Um, and at first he said that. Uh, you know, it was taken out of context. So yeah. then she revealed more of the conversation. So, and and there 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 hasn't been any response. Okay, so is this still that. out of context? <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's always you want to hear more. Well, we'll have to leave it there for now. Madeline Ihajerka is a recently retired columnist for the Chicago Sun Times and journalism grants manager for the Field Foundation. NBC Channel 5's Christian Farr was with us, as well as John Fountain, an independent journalist and journalism professor at Roosevelt University. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This episode of Reset was produced by Andrea Guthman, and it was edited by Meha Ahmed. That's all for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Have a great weekend, and look out for a bonus pod episode in your feed tomorrow morning. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.